Welcome to week nine of the What If series. This week, we are looking at the eighth commandment, which is you shall not steal. So we're out here, of course, in downtown Chicago, asking people the question, have you ever had anything stolen from you or have you ever stolen anything from anyone else? Uh, I think I had a bike stolen from me uh, when I was young. Yeah, my bike was stolen. A material possession, no, but I've had plenty of feelings taken from me. <laughs> oh, they broke my house three times. So they get goodies and stuff. Uh, I don't know if my parents would see this, but I had a party at my house once and they stole pretty much everything. Have you ever had anything stolen? Oh, yeah. Oh, my friend, I'm from, I'm from Brazil. <laughs> oh, yeah. Of course. We live in Chicago. Funny you should say that. Actually, my house was burglarized twice uh, this year. Been broken into twice. They took some jewelry. A car. Uh, somebody broke into my apartment once and took some stuff. Have you ever stolen anything? Yes. Care to elaborate? Well, I was drinking. I stole a Sun-Times truck once. You know what it's like when it's not filled with papers? It's like a go-kart. You just step on it and bam, it took off. No, I mean, like, I've probably stolen, like, a little, uh, like, Baby Bell cheese from 7-Eleven. I mean, cheese is good, man. First thing I ever stole was a thing of mini M&Ms from a corner store, chapstick. That's pretty much it. Yes, I have. Um, when I was 12 years old, I stole cookies from a church. How awkward is that? Well, good morning and welcome to... Uh... I can't believe the snow is not going to melt weekend. Uh, winter is here. Good to have you here today. Greetings to all those joining us upstairs and at uh, Crossroads in Highland Park. So when I was eight or nine, uh, a friend and I walked to the dime store and we stole some candy bars. And we got away with it. So a half hour later, we went back. And we stole some more candy bars, and we got away with it. And so a half hour later, we went back, and we tried to steal some more candy bars, and we got caught. And my life of crime came to an end. I'm very thankful for the uh, store manager who persuaded me that if he called the police, I would spend the, the rest of my natural-born days in prison. Stealing lost its allure, and, uh, and I move forward. That's the good news. The bad news is, that's not the last time that I broke the Eighth Commandment, which says very simply and succinctly, do not steal. Now, before you uh, think, I knew it. I knew the guy was shady the first time I saw him. Phony's a $3 bill. He's a hypocrite. I've always known that. Before you cop an attitude, let me say, I'm quite confident that you have been breaking the Eighth Commandment as well. There's just a whole lot more to it than you might imagine. So this is the ninth week of this Ten Commandments series. We have done Commandments 1 through 7 and Commandment 10. We're now on Commandment 8. And we have noted so far that, that these commandments, right, that were given by God and revealed to Moses and show up in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, these commandments are enormously important. They have shaped Western culture. And these commandments are broken into two categories. There's the first four that govern 
our relationship with God, and then there's the next six, which govern our, our relationship with each other. We've noted that these commandments have a bad reputation. They're seen as being sort of punitive and negative, all these thou shalt nots, but there is a grand positive behind every negative commandment. These are insights into the way life and the world works, given to us by a loving God who can see the, the end at the beginning, who knows what we need to know it is a light into our path. And, and these negative commandments, such as the one we're looking at today, are actually very minor in their restrictions. Right? To be told what we can't do leaves lots of things open for us to do. We replaced the Ten Commandments with about three million laws. We thought the ten were too many. We get rid of them and everything goes in a different direction. We've seen in so many ways, I hope, the brilliance of these Commandments. So now we come to uh, the eighth, and it's simply Exodus 20:15. Don't steal two words in the Hebrew, the word for stealing and the word for do not. Uh, and then it is repeated in the New Testament, and I've tried to, to note all these New Testament sort of restatements of, of the commandments. In, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul writes, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful so he has something to share with those in need. You shall not steal. Now, I think one of the most fascinating things about this commandment are all the assumptions that it's based on. For instance, uh, we should work. Work is a good thing. Earning is an appropriate thing. Work is not part of the curse, work was before the fall. It has been damaged by the curse. Work is harder because of the curse. But we will work in heaven. <laughs> All right? When you look at how heaven gets described, actually look, it's not sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. And the knock against that is that that's going to be boring. Well, there's, there's, there's activity. There's, there's life. There's responsibility in heaven. Work is a good thing. It's a gift. And we should work. We should work so that we have resources to care for ourselves and others. We should work so we can be givers, not simply takers. Work is a good thing. A second assumption uh, that rolls out of this commandment is that we have a right to own things. Right? If somebody's stealing something, well, they have to steal it from somebody. And so private property is a good thing. It's an okay thing. Now, just pause and remind you, we don't actually ultimately own anything. Everything everywhere belongs to God. He created everything in a process we cannot understand and can't replicate. He created it out of nothing. He retains all rights. When you look out the window, it's not Mother Nature you see. It is divine creation. We would be, we would be wise to call it that. So we are reminded that everything Everywhere, including your life, your time, your gifts, your talent, everything belongs to God and he maintains all rights. And so we are not owners, we are stewards temporarily entrusted with God's assets. And God is quite clear that we will be judged according to what we do with what has temporarily been entrusted to us. We're supposed to invest these gifts according to his principles, his values, his vision. 
So judgment, we just since I've said we're going to be judged, we're going to be judged. Half of the parables talk about the fact that we are accountable for what we do. We, we are not judged in the sense that we're going to earn our way to heaven. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift. Our works don't contribute there. But we are accountable for what we do with what we've been given. And, and so we've got to understand we're not ultimate owners. We are stewards. However, in God's providence, personal property is part of the way the world is going to work. And I, I stress this in part because... Perhaps the biggest social experiment of the last 150 years argued against personal property. It argued for, you know, the, the public good, the collective ownership of all things. And, and this plan, socialism, communism, Marxism, call it what you want, it didn't work. It was, a, it was a horrific failure every time it's been tried. It doesn't understand human nature. And it is contrary to the way God set things up. And so, remember, the laws of God reflect the way things work. Right? It's, it's not arbitrary. It is, they, they come from within. They are, they are part of God's character, and they show up in his creation. And so, so personal property is a good thing. A third assumption here is that things are good. Okay? Stuff is good. It's not evil. And, and, and I, I make this point over and over because every Religion, every classic religion is anti-stuff, except Christianity. The Eastern view is that the, the physical world is illusory, it's not permanent, not like the spiritual world, that's what's ultimately real. The, the Greeks had, had this idea that we were after the ideal, right, the archetype, and the physical world was just a, a poor knockoff on that. And this thinking tried to make inroads into the early church, but we see the writers of the New Testament books pushing back against it. So, so the biggest way that this sort of presented itself in the early church were people who claimed the opposite of what we hear today, people who claimed that Jesus was God, but said he wasn't really a man. Because the physical world is bad, and there's no way that God could be part of the physical world, so it just looked like he was a man. So today, people say, well, he was a man, he just wasn't God. But back then, they were saying, well, he's God, just wasn't a man. We call this Gnosticism. And the early writers write against this. The most clear example of this is John's letter, 1 John verse 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, I'm writing you about the things that I saw, the things that I heard, the things that I touched. Jesus Christ was physical. He was real. He wasn't, just a, he wasn't just an illusion. And so the physical world is good. Christianity says matter matters. It's a world-affirming worldview. And this is important because it's truth, but it's also important because it, it, it argues that then our physical lives matter. And the lives of our neighbors matter. And this is why Christians have been at the forefront of pushing forward 
uh, caring for people. This is why it was Christians that, that started hospitals. This is why it's Christians that started orphanages. Because they said the physical lives of people matter. This is why the early church doesn't just have elders. It also has deacons. The, the elders are put, put in charge of the ministry of the word and sacrament. But there, were, there needed to be people who were caring for people. And so there were deacons. This is why when you look at the gifts in the New Testament, you see some of the gifts are, are gifts that are going to help people deal with spiritual growth and development and other gifts that God gives to you to use to serve others are to care for the physical needs of people. This is why as a mission for the church, we say we are here to proclaim the good news and engage in good works. We want to fuel a movement that is going to reach people with the gospel and we want to be a church that is going to help renew communities, to help lives work because this all matters. We are called the word and deed. This is, this is what we see in the gospel. This is why Jesus says, if you say, if you see your neighbor and he's hungry and you see your neighbor and she's cold and you walk by and you say, be well, and you don't provide food or you don't provide a blanket, right? The love of God is not in you. <laughs> That's not what we're called to because everything matters to God, including the physical world. This, by the way, is also why Christians are not called to be ascetics. There's always a strain in the church that is calling on people to sort of, you know, uh, punish themselves and starve themselves and go without anything and, and move into abject poverty. And there's times when I think in a, mis- in a mission way we want to adopt and, and live very, very simply if we're, the people we're trying to care for and minister to are living very, very simply. But... Christianity says, no, the the world is good. Food is good. Friends are good. Stuff is good. We just have to keep these things in perspective. The final assumption that I'll mention, there are many, but the final assumption that I'll mention, I'll just come back to, uh, I've I've shared this before, but it's it's important that we understand that commandments 5 through 10 are based on commandments 1 through 4. That that. We are treating other people well, right? We are not stealing. We are, we are not lying to other people. We are treating other people well because other people have been made in the image of God and have value to God. And, and, to, and to punish them or to deny them or to not love them or care for them is, is to rip God's picture was the comment that, that, that we used previously. And I, I share this because... <laughs> Because today, people just want to jump to the fifth commandment. There was a conference I was reading about uh, over in Scotland. The church leaders were coming together, and the mayor was invited before this theological conclave to come in and offer introductory remarks. And in a very 21st century way, the mayor said, You're theologians. You think big thoughts about God. Okay, great. I'm not a theologian. I'm a practical guy. I'm a mayor. And so here's the deal. What we need you theologians to do is to figure out how we're going to love each other. Figure out how we're going to get along. How neighbors are going to get along. Right. So this is classic 21st century. Let's jump to the fifth commandment. Let's jump to how we're going to get along. Okay, well, here's the deal. Uh, <laughs> the only reason people think we can jump to the fifth commandment is because there's still a halo effect for commandments one through four. 
But, but if we're just going to start on commandment five, if we're, if we're going to ignore God, if we're going to ignore the fact that people have made, been made in the image of God, and we're going to be consistent, then my advice to you in that context would be steal if you think you can get away with it. But in the end, if this is it, if what you see is all you get, this is, then you want, the, you want the easiest, happiest life you can get. So if you want your neighbor's stuff and you think you can get it, take it. Because in the end, all that matters is power. I mean, that was, that, that was Nietzsche's discovery, right? If we're just naked apes, if we're just a bag of chemicals, what's to say how one bag of chemicals should treat another bag of chemicals? It doesn't matter, right? The, this whole idea is based on the starting assumption that you have been made in the image of God and your neighbor has been made in the image of God and God matters and we're accountable and we have been given, God has written these laws on our heart. I, I, people push back on this when you say, look, if you don't believe that there's a God, then you ought to be free to do whatever you want. And they want to argue for justice. It's not consistent. The reason they want to argue for justice is God has written these laws on our heart. They're things that we say we can't get away from. They're, they're feelings, but they're just not consistent with the worldview that people are advocating. So, I want to say again, commandments 5 through 10 are based on commandments 1 through 4. Right? The way we treat people, the way we should treat each other, the way we should treat everybody is based on the fact that there is a God who has made us in his image, and that changes everything. So, there's a lot of assumptions here. The commandment itself says, don't steal. So here's what I know. This is a commandment that many of you feel reasonably secure about. Barna says 86% of Americans say, in terms of stealing, they're good with God. They keep the commandments. But I also know that some of you do steal or have stolen. I know this because of statistics. So there's billions and billions of dollars of things stolen. There's a car stolen in somewhere in the world every 27 seconds. There's uh, all kinds of identity theft. There's tax evasion. I mean, there's, there's shrinkage in every company. Statistically, you get a couple, uh, you know, a couple thousand people together over the course of a weekend and some of you are cheating on your income tax. Some of you are stealing straight up. I, I know that from the statistics because it just plays out that way. I also know that as a pastor because I've been a pastor for 30 years. And so I know that when we gather together, uh, we limp in here putting on our game face. But there's a lot of struggles that go on. And some of the struggles are, are the more acceptable or easy-to-hide kinds of struggles, or socially approved struggles. So there's, there's greed, there's lust, there's anger. But there's also, in this room, there's domestic violence, and there's addictions of all types. And, and I know this just because I know this. I know the congregation. And then I also know this because I know my own heart. <laughs> and so I know the struggles of the human heart, and I know that the, the longer I walk with Christ, the, the, the more I understand how dark my own heart is. So when I came to faith, I thought I was here and God was here and I needed this much grace. Right? And, and over time, 
I actually think that I have gotten better, nicer, kinder. I sort of wrestle with my pride and I, and I, I died to some things. So I think I've gotten better. But I also understand that I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. And that God is a lot bigger than I thought he was. And the need for grace is a whole lot greater than I thought it was. And, and so, so the irony is the longer I walk with Christ, the more I understand my desperate need for grace. I understand, I understand, well, Dallas Willard said, saints, I'm not claiming to be a saint in the contemporary usage of the word, but, but saint is a word used in the Bible to refer to Christ followers. Saints uh, need grace just as much as sinners. Saints burn grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff, right? We depend upon the grace of God. We're broken, fallen, and so I know my own heart, and so I know that there are struggles in this room. By the way, two things before I move on. Let me say, I do hope and pray that you find at Christ Church, not in a service on a Sunday morning, doesn't work that way, but I hope that you find uh, with friends in your small group people who are gracious, loving, merciful, and kind, and, and you can take your game face off and say, I'm really struggling with this. And that what you find when you say, this is my struggle, this is my sin, this is what I have done, this is who I am, that what you find is people that say, okay, I'm sorry for that, for that struggle for you. I will meet you where you are, and I will help you move to become somebody different. I, I hope you find grace, hope, and love in the context of, of the gospel and, and this church. And I also know this. If you are here today and you think that you are better than the thief who breaks the Eighth Commandment, if you think you are better than the person who has got an addiction or the person who is struggling with anger or whatever it is, if, if you're feeling superior, then you, you don't get it. Because right? if you have truly experienced grace, then the response is to be gracious. <laughs> it's not to be proud. It's like, oh my goodness, when I see who I am and what I have been saved and what God has done for me and the love and care for me, then the response is not, oh, I'm better than that. I'm better than that commandment. I'm better than the people that struggle with that. It's, okay, I want to be sure those people know the grace of Christ extended to them. So, I say all that to say this. Uh, I know that many of you in here don't think you are breaking the Eighth Commandment, which means you don't understand the Eighth Commandment. And so to, to help you understand it, I, I want to read to you the two questions that uh, come out of the Heidelberg Catechism. So I mentioned a while ago uh, that the catechisms were developed, they continue to be developed, but it's sort of a Q&A format to help people understand, people who perhaps are, are going to be baptized. There's different times when you sort of want to make sure people understand what's going on. So we have a baptism today at all the campuses. We're excited about that. Catechisms are used there. Catechisms are used in other uh, contexts. And the Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1500s, uh, has a section on the Ten Commandments, and, and it asks two questions. So the first question is, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? The answer is, 
God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, okay, stealing, mugging, uh, cheating on your income tax, whatever that might be, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures. We have a picture here. Uh, this is from the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, Leslie Thrasher painted this, and so we have the uh, grocer pushing down. We have the uh, woman pushing up, right? Everybody's trying to cheat the system. So not only false weights and measures, but deceptive merchandising. Okay, so this would include lots of marketing and advertising. Leslie Smeeds wrote a book on ethics, and he said, if you're trying to motivate somebody, if you're trying to manipulate somebody, to spend money that they don't need to spend, perhaps on a product that isn't good for them, you're breaking the Eighth Commandment. Deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, probably not a lot of counterfeiters here, it's just really hard. (laughs) And usury, which of course is the basis of much of our financial systems today, but uh, oppressive interest rates. I I don't think charging interest is wrong, please don't hear that. Uh, there are some that, that suggest that that is what gets outlawed in the Old Testament, but I think there's reasons to think that that's not the case. But oppressive interest rates. So, uh, look, you break the Eighth Commandment when you don't do your best work. You're stealing from your employer. You break the Eighth Commandment when you don't pay fair wages. You're stealing time from the people that work for you. You break the Eighth Commandment when you don't pay your taxes or your debts. You break the Eighth Commandment when you pad your expense account. There's all kinds of ways that are more white-collar ways to steal than mugging somebody, uh, breaking and entering. So the Heidelberg Catechism goes on. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of might. In addition, God forbids, this is the key, in addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. So, there's a sense in which we violate the Eighth Commandment if we take something that isn't ours. And there's also a sense when you consider what Jesus taught, you consider the rest of the New Testament uh, ethical instruction, there's also a sense in which you break the Eighth Commandment when you're not generous or when you squander the gifts and abilities that you have and don't use them to serve others. That leads right into the second question. What does God require of you in the Eighth Commandment? The answer, I must promote my neighbor's good whenever I can and may deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. So this changes everything, okay? This changes everything. It's, there's a, there was a joke, old joke, bad joke. Uh, when is a door not a door? When it's a jar? <laughs> when is a thief not a thief? The answer is not when they stop stealing. The answer is a thief is not a thief when they're radically generous. Right, those, are the two, those are the two options that the Eighth Commandment says. You are a thief or you're radically generous. Those are your options. And if you're not radically generous, you are 
a thief. And, and once you start to look at this, once you start to, to bring that insight to bear on the Eighth Commandment, you see all kinds of other passages that, that reflect this. So I'll just give one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Malachi uh, chapter 3 is the Old Testament. Will a man rob God? So here's the language of stealing. Will you steal from God? Yet you rob me, God says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, God says. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So this is a passage that, that, that suggests that we are stewards of God's resources. We actually get to keep 90%. If we're not giving at least 10% right, to, to the poor, to the church, to, to the people we're in a covenant relationship with, if we're, not at least, if we're not at least giving 10%, then we're robbing from God. Stealing, violating the Eighth Commandment. Second verse I'll read, New Testament verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? God gives good things. We don't have to be ecstatic. God gives us things for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. So three takeaways from this passage as as I end. The first is to recognize that we are commanded to be radically generous, which I think suggests that Christ followers should all live below their station, right? There should be some way that you look and say, because I am choosing to be generous, because I am choosing to share, because I am choosing to give, because I am choosing to serve, I don't something. I live in a smaller house than I might be able to. I I drive uh, an older car than I might otherwise be able to. I take different kinds of vacations than I otherwise be able to. Look, I don't want to pick on your house, car, vacations. I'm just going to say, if you cannot point to something and say, I actually live below what I could afford, then it seems to me that you're not being radically generous and you're, you're breaking the Eighth Commandment. That's what we get called to. So I'll let you work it out. I'm just saying... There ought to be things we're not doing so we can be caring for other people. In addition to that, I think that that this commandment and everything that lies behind it suggests that that ought not to be such a big deal. Like we ought to not think, wow. First, you ought not to think that's a really big ask that the pastor is making. And you ought to also not think, I'm really being something by doing this. Because to really get it is like, well, of course, given all that I have been given, given God's forgiveness, given eternal life, right? given, given everything that has been given to me by God, this isn't a sacrifice to drive a car that isn't as nice as some other cars. This isn't a sacrifice. I'm not a martyr. This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't a hardship that I'm suffering. 
This is an opportunity that I have. I, I want to suggest, if you understand the gospel, then living below your means in order to love and serve other people ought to seem like a no-brainer. And I also want to note that the passage, like all other passages that call on us to be generous, never does so because of guilt. We are never, God never tries to motivate us with guilt. Lots of pastors try and motivate with guilt. I used to try and motivate with guilt. It's exhausting, and it doesn't work for very long, and you got to keep getting, making people feel guilty, or I don't want, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm not, I'm not going there. In, in this passage, it says, look, encourage them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Right? The, the motivation that we're always given about being generous is that this is in our best interest. We're going to live forever. We want to be good stewards of the gifts and abilities that God has given us. We want to invest it in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. So, so I want to say to you, there's a lot here in this commandment, right? All these assumptions that work is good and things are good and private property is okay and that, that we're doing all this because God is motivating us. Eighth commandment says not only don't take what isn't yours, but it says be generous with everything that is yours. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great generosity. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and mercy and kindness extended to us in so many ways, especially in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for a good world that we can enjoy. Thank you for the the freedom to enjoy friends and nice things and food. And and we thank you for, for showering us with those good things. And I pray... Father, that we would, we would see with those good things opportunities to share with others and to use the gifts and abilities, the resources, the opportunities that you've given us to love and care for others, to share your love with them. Help us to be radically generous with our lives. Forgive us where we have been greedy and miserly. Forgive us for, for stealing, in whether it was time or candy bars or big Big ticket items, whatever it was, Father, we confess our brokenness yet again. Thank you for your grace. Help us to lean into the spirit behind this commandment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.